coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and today I'm very excited to be joined by my co-host, Charlie, who is here to help me close out the August mailbag. And Charlie, it's been a minute. I know you've been busy with life over the past couple of weeks. I haven't really seen or talked to you much, but are you ready to ramp things back up for the 2020 season here in a couple weeks? Yeah, let's go. You ready? Let's go. I mean, I hope so. I mean, yeah, we all hope so, for sure. But you guys might have noticed now that there is at least some clarity that it seems like we're going to at least try to have a season. And the teams in the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12, they're well into fall camp. We have gone in the past couple weeks from two to three episodes a week. And once the season starts, the plan is to go back to four episodes a week, just like we did last year. Our goal is to be your one-stop shop for Georgia football coverage during the 2020 season. So... Each week, we're going to be running a game recap show, a weekly mailbag episode, a game preview episode, and then we're going to wrap up the week with a picks of the week episode, which is always a lot of fun. We get a listener on there each and every week and let them let you guys throw out your picks as well. We have a lot of fun with those episodes. And since Curtis is now into year two of law school, he's getting fancy on us, getting big time, he can't quite dedicate as much time to the podcast, at least as much time as it would take for four episodes a week. So that is where Charlie comes in. She will be back to help me with the mailbag and picks of the week episodes each week. So we're kind of just working her back into things as we move into September. Of course, fingers crossed, all this is assuming that we do end up having a season. And on that topic, Charlie, I don't think you've been on since we had all that chaos over the past couple of weeks. So we haven't gotten you on record on that topic. Like Things have died down a little bit for the time being. But how confident are you that we're actually going to get through an entire fall season this year? An entire season? An get, entire season. Get, get to the end, get to the playoffs? I think we all think we're going to probably going to start, but do you think, think we're going to get through the season? No. No? Oh, God, don't do that to me. Why? Were your dreams just crushed? I mean, a little bit, yeah. Sorry, I just don't think it's going to happen. Why? I hope I'm wrong. I really do. You better hope be I'm wrong because you might not have someone to talk to ever. I'm going to be gone. I'm just saying. North Carolina shut it down. They didn't shut Oh, they're back. It was a couple well, but days. But the students are not in classes. But that doesn't which matter. Which is the best thing for the athletes. Yes, uh, that's how you create a bubble in college football. <laughs> yeah. send, them, send all the other students home have the college football players on campus. They didn't send them home, though, I don't think. North Carolina? Yeah. I, I mean, I, know, I think they're going all... I think NC State is going all online. I don't know if they're kicking people out of dorms and whatnot. I haven't looked at it that closely. But you really don't think we're going to be able to get through the whole season? I don't know. It could go either way. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not here to predict anything. I really... Like, I'm not saying you're wrong. I, that's one thing I've learned when this whole, with this whole pandemic is, like, there, there's no predicting what's going to happen with the coronavirus. Like, just when you think things are getting better, then something crazy happens. When you think there's no no light into the tunnel, well, things start to improve a little bit. So it's tough to predict. I, I hope you're wrong. I'm 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 cautiously optimistic. I guess I, for me, it's the power of neutral thinking. This is I read a book this summer. I forget what it's called, but it's all about neutral thinking. Not not positive thinking. Not negative thinking. You just want to be neutral. Not too high. Not too low. Because you never know what's going to happen. And so that's how I live my life. Yeah, I mean. I, I do it in a yeah, lot of ways, no, but, just, but with football, I'm always like, an, like, I always prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Like, I'm always prepared that we're going to lose every single game. That way, if it happens, it doesn't destroy my soul, uh, which it already kind of does anyway. But that's the only way to kind of protect my my emotional state during the football season. But I'm going with neutral thinking here. Let's just let's just see what happens day by day, day by day. So you might not be wrong. I hope you're wrong. But for now, we're gonna we're gonna keep going forward, pushing forward. Like we're gonna have a season because that's what. That's what it looks like as of now. Of course, things can change in an instant, of course. But all right, we've got some questions to get to today. Curtis and I ran through the first batch of August mailbag questions earlier in the week, but we still have a number of great questions. You guys, you guys always send in great questions. So we've got a number of those left to answer here on part two of the August mailbag. So Charlie, what do you have for me today? Well, we are now almost two weeks into fall camp. In fact, the first scrimmage of the fall is apparently scheduled for Saturday. Let's go. Yeah, it's coming up Let's soon. Let's go. 
So with our first question of the day, Darren wants to know whose stock is up and whose stock is down based on preseason rumblings you have heard so far. Yeah, this is a great question. It's a fun question. This this it's the time of year where you ask questions like this. And here's what I would say. I don't know if I have any because I was trying to rack my brain when I saw this question. Like, whose stock is down right now? Because when you're in the early stages of fall camp and you haven't had a scrimmage yet, like you don't really have all that much information to go off of. And what you have is what you're seeing like in, in shorts and helmets and maybe throwing some shoulder pads, but not really a ton of contact. And it's just kind of like how these guys look on the hoof, right? So you, no one really has terrible things to say about players. You don't hear those kind of things this early in fall camp. Now, fast forward a couple weeks after a scrimmage or two, then you might start to hear some things, hear about some guys making some moves, maybe a guy that's not performing at the level that the coaches were hoping. They might be sliding on the depth chart, those kind of things. But right now, I only have some guys that I think their stock is pointing up right now. And, and we can certainly update this. And Darren, it's a great question. We'll come back to this in a couple weeks, maybe after this weekend's scrimmage. And we'll see if maybe there's some guys that would fall on the stock down list. But right now, I don't know if there's anyone that's really there at this point. So let's look at some guys who I think their stock is really rising right now. And I'm going to start on the offensive side of the ball where we will work our way over to the defense. But I'm going to start a wide receiver because this is a position where we really need some help. We, we know we have George Pickens, but we've got to have some guys to step up opposite Pickens to take some pressure off him and just make our offense that much more lethal to deal with. And the two names I'm hearing a lot about right now, number one, and we heard a lot about him through the summer with the voluntary workouts, doing some seven-on-seven stuff with his teammates, and that's Jermaine Burton, true freshman Jermaine Burton. This guy is going to be a monster, and I think he might have a George Pickens-type impact in year one. I, I, I'm almost ready to say that. I know we, and we, I, I'm not going to go full board onto that because we haven't had a scrimmage yet, and usually when we have some scrimmages, that's where I get some information coming from a few contacts I have around the program. You hear, you hear some things about those events. But uh, I've heard nothing but glowing things about Jermaine Burton. This guy, and you saw it in high school, but this guy is the total package. He is uh, maybe not the biggest guy in the world, but look at the, all the, the great modern receivers in the NFL. Look at guys like DeAndre Hopkins, right, who, well, formerly of the Houston Texans. Look at a guy like Antonio Brown. Those are the kind of guys that you see more and more in the NFL making a major impact on some of these teams because those, like Sammy Watkins for Kansas City as well, those guys can do a lot of things that modern spread type offenses really kind of feature. They, can, they run the option routes really well. They can get in space. They can, they can stretch you vertically. They can run after the catch. They can run the RPO game, all those kind of things. And of course, you still have your Julio Jones, your AJ Greens. Those kind of guys are great too, obviously. But it used to be like if you weren't 6'3 or 6'4, you couldn't be an elite receiver. And that's not the case anymore. So Jermaine Burton is more in that kind of mold. Really good speed, extraordinarily strong, short area quickness, great hands, great body control, just a route running ability. Everything you want in a receiver, this guy can do it. Extraordinarily polished for a receiver coming out of high school. And I thought those things of him, as we said, you know, throughout the offseason, I thought those things of him prior to him getting on campus. But now that he's on campus, I've heard nothing but just outstanding, glowing things about Jermaine Burton. I'm fully expecting him to make a major impact this year for us. And the other receiver I'm going to mention here is Kiaris Jackson, who's a guy that, that saw a good bit of playing time last year, got banged up a little bit, came back uh, later in the season. And he's a guy that, that does all the things the right way. He's one of those guys who's a leader on your team. He's a physical player. does everything a coach wants you to do, gets after it. Great work ethic, all those kind of things. But he's also a talented player, too. A little bit undersized, but he's a guy that I think can certainly make some plays. I think last year, Curtis and I talked about this. He's a guy that that certainly is one of those players that, as we saw all throughout the year last year, we were just misusing. We weren't utilizing his talents in, in the best way. We weren't maximizing his abilities. We were trying to force him to do some things that really didn't fit his skill set. Things that guys that were much bigger than him did in the past very well, but he wasn't that kind of receiver. So I think with a new coordinator and a new and a new offensive scheme, that we might find a way to feature his skill set a little bit more. And he's a guy that I, that I can see making an impact. And I've heard some really good things about him as well at that receiver position. On the offensive line, a guy that I've heard a lot about, and I was hearing a lot about Broderick Jones in in the preseason when guys are here just kind of doing voluntary workouts. But Tate Ratledge is a name that's kind of come on of late at that right tackle spot. I'm not ready to say, I, heard, I have not heard enough to say that he's going to be the starter at right tackle, but he's certainly in the thick of things and he is pushing. He's a true freshman coming in along with Broderick Jones, just a little bit rated, just a little bit under Broderick Jones in last year's recruiting cycle. But I mean, he was a five-star talent in my mind, absolutely. 
and he was borderline on the 247 composites, but I think he's a five-star guy. So he's a guy that's making a move at offensive tackle right now, so we'll see if he can ultimately end up winning that job. I don't know. I don't know. We'll really get more of a feel for these things once we get into the scrimmage settings, but he's certainly a guy that I've heard some good things about. At this point, his stock is pointing up. George Pickens, we all know how good George Pickens is. I've heard that he's taking it to another level right now. That's the word coming out of camp is that he is he is everything that we expect him to be and maybe even a little bit more. So very excited to see what we have in George Pickens in year two. Hopefully he's matured a little bit. And I certainly think that's the case. We saw him mature last year as well towards the end of the season. Now obviously made a mistake in that Georgia Tech game. But uh, I think he learned from that. And I think he's going to be a different guy on the field this year. Zamir White is a guy that you're hearing is in outstanding shape. That it, 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 as I've talked about all offseason, if Zeus is back to 100%, I think he's he's our guy at running back. If he's back to the Zeus of old, we didn't see that Zeus last year. So I, I don't I I haven't seen him be back to 100%. But from what I'm understanding from some from some people that I, I'm hearing from, it seems like he's getting much much closer to that, and he he's got that burst, that explosiveness back in his game, that short air quickness is back. Seems more confident in in his knees. So. I'm very excited to see my own two eyes what Zeus looks like, but I'm hearing really good things right now. Jordan Davis, let's move over to the defense side of the ball. Jordan Davis, I mean, we heard we heard Dan Lanning in his one interview that he has all year, right? Did that in the preseason. I guess he'll have that in the preseason and one right before the bowl game if we – I don't even know if we'll have a bowl game. We'll see how that works out. Maybe a college ball playoff game, right? Uh, but he came out and was talking really, really highly of Jordan Davis and talk about how his expectations are extraordinarily high for Jordan Davis. And I've heard the same from other sources as well. And we saw him come on. I mean, he had a great year last year. But I thought he really turned it on late last year. I'm fully expecting him to be an absolute beast in the interior for us. And that nose guard position in Kirby's defense, being able to two gap is a really, really important, maybe the most important position on that defense. I think you can make that argument. So I'm really excited for him this year. And then the last guy, we saw him come on towards the end of last year, played a lot in the LSU, against LSU in the SEC title game. Lewis Seen replacing J.R. Reed at safety next to Richard LeCount. This guy, he's, and he's kind of like Richard. He's not the biggest guy in the world, but he will bring the wood. I've heard he's just laying people out, out in practice right now. So he, well, as much as you can when you're not completely in full pads, you're not in a scrimmage setting. But he's bringing the wood, and that's kind of his reputation. And uh, I know that Kirby loves this guy. And I've been hearing this since going back to middle of the season last year. So Lewis Seen's a guy who I also think his stock is way up right now. I expect him to have – I mean, I'm not going to say we're not going to miss a beat at safety without Jerry because he was a first-team All-American. But I certainly don't think we're going to take a, a, a major step back in any way with Lewis Seen replacing JRE. In fact, we might have upgraded from a talent perspective, but JR is just so experienced and, and just did all the little things right for us. But uh, very excited for all those guys, for sure. All right. You might talk for 30 minutes on this next question, too, because I know how you love to get into the X's and O's, but Ghost Dog 3 asks, will you explain how the passing routes and formations will change from a pro style to Munkin's pro spread? Why well, you always got to hate on me? I mean, it's true. They the listeners like it, so I, mean, sit I back hope and they enjoy. like it. If you guys don't like it, please tell me. I'm going too long. I with think some of these they answers. like it, and that's great. It's just well, sometimes... that's, that's how we kind of differentiate ourselves here on yeah. the show. We try to talk like hardcore football that maybe you don't get on some other podcasts. So I do see. I know it's not for everybody. Your notes I get that. Go on to the next page. Oh my one. god! No, like no, not really. Just a little Very bit. Detailed. Just a little bit. Yeah. Or so, but detail. this is a great question. You're right, Charlie. I do love questions like this. And I'll start with this. Ghost Dog, thanks for the question, man. This is awesome. But let me start by saying this. It, I think it's very tough to definitively answer this question because we just don't know exactly what the offense is going to look like. Curtis and I have been talking about that a lot throughout the offseason. I mean, look, we don't know – like we know what Munkin has done in the past, but has we don't know how much he's evolved and what he's learned from his days you know, when he was calling plays at Oklahoma State and Southern Miss you know, five or six years ago. College football has evolved. And yes, he was in the NFL for a while, but the college football game, it's different from the NFL. So what what does he learn? What new concepts is he going to try to implement? We don't have those answers. And we also don't know how much of what we have run previously or what other coaches like Matt Luke are familiar with. We don't know how much of those kind of concepts that he's going to incorporate into his offense as well. But saying that, I do think we can look into Munkin's past for some clues as to what the offense might look like and how things might change from our pro-style attack from years past to a more up-tempo spread type attack. So let's start by looking at, at the Southern Miss offense that he ran. He was the head coach there, but he was running the offense as well in 2015, which was his last year there. It kind of catapulted him to the NFL, got a coordinator job with Tampa Bay. And so that last year at Southern Miss in 2015, 
Let's start with kind of just the personnel they use because that's where you have to start offensively. So they were in 20 or 21 personnel, which 20 personnel is two running backs, zero tight ends. 21 personnel is two running backs, one tight end, and two receivers. They were in 20 or 21 personnel 47% of the time, and then in 11 personnel, which is one running back, one tight end, three wide receivers, 47% of the time. So what that means is they were in two running back personnel groups almost 50% of the time at Southern Miss in 2015. Now, what exactly does that mean or what exactly does that look like? Now, does that mean you're going to have two tailbacks in your backfield on those plays? Maybe. It could be that. But it could also be an H-back or a tight end kind of operating in the backfield as a fullback, like a, like a tight end body. Like you have Trey McKitty, for instance, in the backfield. Like we think he's a tight end, but he's functioning as a, as a running back. Right? He's functioning as a fullback, more or less, but he's really got a tight end body. But we would still classify him as a, as a running back in those situations. Now, also in 2015 at Southern Miss, Todd Munkin had two 1,000-yard rushers. So could we see that with Zamir White and James Cook this year? I certainly think that's a possibility. I do expect us to see both those guys in the backfield far more than we have seen our top two runbacks in the backfield at the same time in the years past here, the past four years under Kirby Smart. And if you look at what we were last year from a personnel standpoint in 2019, we only had, I think I've used this stat before on the show, we only ran five plays total last year without a tight end. Well, in 2015, again, I know this is five years ago, but in 2015, 20% of Todd Munkin's plays at Southern Miss did not have a tight end. That's a fifth of his plays did not have like a traditional inline type tight end. They did not have that. So what can we learn from that? Like I would say that we're probably going to try to get more athletes on the field from a personnel perspective, maybe not as tight end heavy, at least not using tight ends in the same way that we have the past couple years. Now, formationally, from, from a formation perspective, one thing I really expect to see us do a better job of under Munkin is maximize spacing in a way that we have never done before. Now, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to use a ton of empty sets. Maybe, uh, you know, the game has evolved, so maybe we'll use more of that. But Munkin didn't really use a ton of empty sets at Oklahoma State or Southern Miss. But again, the game has evolved. That was five, six years ago. But when, I, when I'm talking about spacing, I'm talking about where we align our receivers. Think about Baylor, right? Think about Baylor uh, a couple years ago under Art Bryles when he was really kind of revolutionizing things offensively. And what he would do is essentially line his, his outside receivers, his, his X receiver and his Z receiver, line them up almost on the sideline, like literally like almost out of bounds. You want to spread them as far out as you possibly can because that creates more room to operate in the passing game. And I think that we're going to see more of that under Todd Muckin than we ever have before, like maybe in the history of the University of Georgia and, and our offenses. Uh, and another formation I expect to see more use of this year is, is the pistol formation, at least the, the family of the pistol formation, because that's something that Todd Munkin made a lot of use of at Oklahoma State. Now, he sometimes uses use that at a diamond formation. He's got kind of creative. That's why I say the family of pistol formations, because you can run diamond pistol, all sorts of different variations of, of pistol. But guys, we only ran pistol 3% of our plays last year. All right? I was under 30 plays total all year long. So we did use it, just not very much. And I'm a big proponent of using the pistol offense because when you're in a traditional shotgun set, let's say you have your quarterback behind the center, you have your running back to the right or left of the, of the quarterback. Now, sure, you can run some counters, but most of the time, if you're running the ball, it's going to go opposite the side where the running back lines up on. He's going to take the handoff. Let's say if he's lined up on the right of the quarterback, he's going to take the handoff on the right, and he's going to run left, right? You run around left end, left tackle, whatever. Now, sure, there are counters you can run as well, but you don't see those aren't as prominent. But if you run with a pistol, you don't really necessarily, as a defense, you don't know what side of the line the running back, or you're less likely to know what side of the line the running back is going to be running to. Sure, you can use you know, the tendencies based on their formation and based on the strength of the offense. You can, you can look at things like that. But again, if you're in, in if, if I'm playing middle linebacker and I see an offense in shotgun and they're lined up with a running back to the right of the quarterback, well, I'm thinking, okay, it's probably going to go to the left side of the offensive line more often than not, right? But if you're in a shot, if you're in pistol, all of a sudden, like it becomes a little less clear. You don't, you're not exactly sure. So I think that gives you a little bit of an advantage there. So I expect to see more of that formationally. Now, from a routes perspective, because that was in the question as well, look, I, I certainly expect us to see more vertical routes because Todd Munkin is a guy that, that wants to push the ball down the field. 
And more specifically, when I'm talking about pushing the ball down the field, I really expect to see more four vertical combinations. Now you can push the ball vertically in a lot of different ways, but four verticals is the easiest way. And the reason for that, the reason I expect to see more four vertical combinations is that not only does Todd Munkin like to stress defenses vertically in the passing game, but traditionally with our ability to run the football, with our great staple of running backs, our really strong offensive line, we get a lot of cover three looks because cover three allows defenses to roll a safety down into the box to gain a numbers advantage in that box against the run. So that, you know, cover three and man free, where basically you still have that deep middle safety in the middle of the field, but you're playing man on the outside, which is what South Carolina did to us last year to great effect. But cover three and man free are kind of like the go-to coverage schemes that allow you to attack a strong run game. So we've seen a lot of those two coverages over the past four or five years. Well, what just happens to be the best cover three beater out there? Four verticals. When you have three deep defenders dividing the field into deep thirds, there just aren't enough guys to defend four vertical routes if you execute it correctly. We always talk about the numbers advantage in the box, but numbers are a big deal in coverages as well. And the primary way to attack a coverage that sends three deep defenders into the deep thirds is to send four vertical receivers, one more than they can cover, into those deep thirds. And just to take this one more step here, one play that the Bucks in the NFL really started to run a lot when Munkin was their offensive coordinator was a, a specific variation of four verticals called Seattle. And it's called Seattle. And this doesn't really matter, but just if you're wondering where that name comes from, it's called Seattle because the Seattle Seahawks under Pete Carroll, obviously when they were winning a Super Bowl and, and and playing great defense for years, they were doing that largely out of a cover three scheme. Like Richard Sherman is seen as a, a great cornerback in the NFL, and he's done a really great job. But he's also gotten—I don't want to say criticism—but some of his his colleagues in the NFL, other cornerbacks, point to him and say, "Well, you're just a cover three corner. You're not really playing anybody man to man." It's kind of something they use to denigrate his ability. But anyway, Seattle played a lot of cover three. And so when they were having so much success with that defensively, the NFL is a copycat league. It caught on throughout the rest of the league as well. And a lot of other teams started to run a lot more cover three. So when that happens, what do offensive coordinators have to do? Well, they have to figure out a way, get innovative, and create some more cover three beaters. So that's where the name Seattle comes from. But Seattle is a play where three of those wide receivers that are running vertical routes go straight vertical. They run those straight vertical nine routes. But your slot wide receiver, at least one of those slot wide receivers, rather than running a straight vertical nine go route, he runs a shallow crossing pattern in front of the linebackers. And when he does that, that tells the safety who has the deep middle third to pass that wide receiver off to a linebacker. And instead, that safety focuses his attention on the tight end or the other slot receiver, depends on the personnel grouping you have in there, but tells, tells him to focus his attention on that other receiver running vertically through the seam. But once that slot wide receiver who is running that crossing route crosses the face of the linebackers, well, what he's going to do then is cut sharply upfield into that voided area, which is basically the seam on the opposite side of the safety. And there's not going to be anyone there. The linebacker might catch on to what's happening and try to carry him through the seams and try to keep up with him. But I like that matchup all day long. So that's something I could see us really using guys like, like maybe Demetrius Robertson, Jermaine Burton coming in as a true freshman, Kiaris Jackson, Dominic Blaylock, those more slot receiver type guys. I can see them running that route and killing defenses with it. And I also expect us to use the middle of the field a lot more often. That's something that was almost non-existent the past couple years under Jake Fromm. I don't know if it's that Jake didn't have the arm strength. I know his arm is fine. It's solid. It's decent. But I, I honestly think that Jake just lacked confidence throwing across the middle of the field. Certainly at times we just didn't call plays to do that. But there were times where guys were running open across the middle of the field and Jake would see them and just wouldn't pull the trigger. It's almost like he just didn't have confidence in himself to hit those passes across the middle. What well, you do have a lot more defenders. It's a lot more dangerous. It's a lot safer to throw an outside route the back shoulder pass, which is probably not going to get intercepted. So I do expect us to use the middle of the field more often. Almost 30% of Nick Mullen's attempts he was their quarterback at Southern Miss in 2015. Almost 30% of his attempts were, were between the hashes in 2015, according to Pro Football Focus. 
Again, that kind of goes hand in hand with creating space offensively. What that does when you create space, it creates gaps in the defense that allow you to tack different holes throughout that defense rather than having all your, your receivers bunched together and there's all that traffic in the middle of the field and you can't really use it all that much because there's so many bodies kind of just packed into the middle of the field. When you spread guys out, all of a sudden you can use the middle of the field a lot more effectively. Uh, RPOs weren't really a major part of Munkin's offenses at Oklahoma State and Southern Miss. They certainly used them to some degree. But I, I wouldn't say extensively. But the game has changed. It's another way, another area where the game has evolved. So we might see more of those now this year, especially with Matt Luke's experience running those along with his quarterback run game, kind of that play-action experience he brings to the table. So we might see more of those, but we haven't seen those historically a ton with Munkin. Uh, and I think if you look at – like let, let's talk about philosophically as well. Like If you're talking about what we're going to look like this year – we're going to be more pass-heavy. We are going to throw the ball more. I, I saw an interview with Munkin when we first hired him. This was, well, I, you know, months ago now. Uh, try, try, I looked up as much information I could possibly find about the guy, and I found an interview with him where he was talking about how he has learned to pass to win, and that kind of stuck with me. And so I looked up the numbers here, and, and it, it, the numbers bear out that exact sentiment. In 2011 at Oklahoma State, they threw the ball 60% of the time when he was their coordinator in 2012. They threw the ball 50% of the time going to Southern Miss. In 2013, 59% of their plays were passes. 2014 was 56%. In 2015, it was 55% of their plays were pass plays. Well, where have we been? Huh. Well, compared to Munkin and his offenses, n- nothing close. In 2016, we threw the ball 42% of the time with Jacob Beeson. In 2017, the run to the national title game, we only threw the ball 31% of the time in that season. 2018, a little bit more, 38% of the time. And last year, maybe surprisingly, we threw the ball 44% of the time last year. So if, that, if you average that out in his five years, in his last five years calling out offenses at the college level, Todd Munkin's offenses threw the ball on average 56% of the time. And over the last four years, Kirby Smart's entire tenure here at Georgia, We've thrown the ball on average 38% of the time. So we're certainly going to run the ball. That's We're not going to completely get away from that. But we're going to see a lot more in the passing game than we have ever seen before, at least under Kirby Smart, for sure. So I hope that kind of answered the question without killing Charlie over here. Thank you for that very thorough um, explanation. Yes, so, it was a thorough explanation. Yes, two thumbs up. Next, we have a question from one of our most loyal listeners. Cliff is looking at the wide receiver position and wants to know which wide receiver you expect to be a big-time contributor. Cliff thinks Kiaris Jackson, former shot put state champion and strongest pound-for-pound wide receiver, is the guy that's going to have an epic season. Tyler, what about you? Yeah, so I kind of, I guess I already answered this a little bit with our stock up question to, to open things up. But I, I'm with you, Cliff. I, I'm hearing really good things about Kiaris, and, and he is. He's, he's kind of a physical, I, I, I don't know if I want to say freak, but you're right. He's extraordinarily strong. He's a powerful guy, a really good athlete as well. And he's a guy that I do expect to be a big part of the rotation this year. But the guy that I'm expecting to be a big-time contributor outside of George Pickens, again, I'm, I'm going with Jermaine Burton. I know he's a true freshman. But I think this guy is the real deal. Everything I've seen from him, everything I've heard about him, is that this guy is legit. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of things very similar to what I heard about George Pickens last year, to be honest with you. So I think Jermaine Burton could be that guy. Kiers is certainly in that conversation. And I, at the very least, he's going to be a, a big-time contributor for us. But I think Jermaine Burton might end up being that guy sooner rather than later. That's going to be that number one compliment to George Pickens. So yeah, Kiers, Jermaine, whoever it might be, I think we got some options there. All right, for our next question, Caleb wants you to predict the statistical leader for each major category, like passing yards, rushing yards, receiving yards, tackles, and so on. Yeah, good question. Thanks, Caleb. Um, I'm not, I think passing might be the easiest. Yes, JT Daniels is make. well, I shouldn't say it. Receiving is the easiest, right? George Pickens is going to lead us in receiving yards, barring injury. So I'm going to say that right now. That's the easiest one to pick. Newman, I think, is still the guy that's going to end up winning this job as the court, as our starting quarterback. J.K. Daniels is going to push him. I firmly believe that. But I do think Newman's going to end up being the guy. And if he stays healthy, I think he's going to end up leading us in, in passing. Rushing, I'm very intrigued by what James Cook could be in this Todd Munkin offense. But if Zeus is back to being the Zeus of old, as I am hearing, then I think Zeus is going to be that guy. Maybe we'll have 2,000-yard rushers again, like we had with Nick and Soding. I mean, Todd Munkin has that in his background. He had that at Southern Miss. 
And I think we have two guys that are capable of doing that if they are given the opportunity to do so, if that's how we want to structure our, our offense. But I'm going to go with Zamir White right now to be that, that number one feature back. But I do think James Cook's going to have a, a really good year for us as well. Tackles, uh, I'm going to go with Monty Rice. Monty Rice is going to be that guy. Sure, you could throw in Richard LeCount as, as, a, as a name that could potentially fight for that top spot as the, t- as the top tackler on the team as well. But I think Monty Rice, yes, we're going to have a rotation inside linebacker, but I think he's going to be kind of like with Roquan in 2017. Yeah, we rotated inside linebacker. We would rotate in Reggie, Reggie Carter. We'd rotate in HRS Patrick. But Roquan was in there far more often than everybody else. Yeah, he'd get a breather every you know three or four series. But he wasn't rotating in and out like every other series that some of those other guys were. And I think we're going to see that with, with Monty Rice as well. I think he's going to be a fixture in that defense in uh, most, most drives, especially on those standard downs. So I'm, I'm going to go with Monty Rice there. Sacks, though, this is tough. There's a number of different candidates for this for this honor. I think Aziz Ojolari, we saw him do some really good things last year. I think he could be that guy this year. Nolan Smith as a former number one overall recruit, an explosive pass rusher in his own right. He could explode on the scene and, and be that guy this year. But the guy that I'm hearing a lot of things about and I'm really excited about, just looking at what this guy has done to his body, I'm going to go with Jermaine Johnson. And I'm taking a flyer there because, again, it could be Aziz. It could be Nolan. I, it would not shock me at all if it was either of those guys. But I think Jermaine Johnson is the guy that I'm going to go with right now to be the, the sack leader. So that's kind of where I'd go with those numbers. All right. Next up, we have a question about the defense. As good as our defense has been, well, our issues with actually getting the quarterback on the ground have been well documented. So Alex wants to know, will Georgia go over or under 45 sacks this year? Thanks for the question, Alex. I always appreciate it, man. I'm going to go with a hard under on this. And I know that's not what everybody wants to hear, but I'm going to have to go with the under on this based off what we've seen every single year under Kirby Smart. We've only averaged 29 and a half sacks a year under Kirby Smart. As good as our defenses have been, as good as our defense was last year. We I think we had yeah, we had 31 sacks on the year last year. So we're gonna jump up to 45 this year. I I, I don't see it. I, I hope so, that'd be awesome. But I'm just not seeing it right now. I mean 45 sacks, that's a big number. That would have put us in the top 10 nationally last year. And I know we have some guys that we're really excited about an outside linebacker and some guys that if fully unleashed on a down-by-down basis, yeah, maybe we could get to that spot. But rushing the passer, like actually getting sacks, getting the quarterback on the ground, as great as that is, it just isn't the priority with Kirby Smart defenses. And I know some people have an issue with that. I get that. But I think the results really speak for themselves. I mean, look, we were I think we were the best defense in the country last year, arguably number one up there with Ohio State. But we structure things a little bit differently. We have different priorities philosophically. We really do not bring four pass like more than four pass rushers all that often. Like we really, really don't. Uh, and in our early downs, we'd certainly prior- prioritize run gap integrity over getting to the quarterback. That's just that's the way we structure our defense. We run. I'm gonna get a little a little technical here because I, I think this is an important question. So we hear this a lot. Like, well, why George is so good on defense, but so why can't we get the, the sack numbers up? Why can't we get those havoc numbers up? Well, we run a lot of something that we call a mint front, okay? And when I say mint, I'm, I'm saying like mint candy, right? Like you're, you're eating a mint. Uh, and front as in like defensive front. And what the mint front is, it's kind of like the tight front, uh, but it's just kind of our variation of the tight front. And so in the mint front, we have a nose guard basically playing a zero tech, a zero technique like straight up on the nose, uh, on the center. And he's two gapping, uh, either a gap, right? Depending on, he, he's... At the snap, he's locking on to the center. He's reading where the if, if it's a run play, is it going to the left, is it going to the right? And he's kind of just two-gapping that way, right? Then we have the defensive tackles or defensive end. Defensive tackle, usually when we're in a mint front, we have a, a three-tech defensive tackle and a five-tech defensive end in there. But they're both playing four-eye techniques, right? So that's the inside eye of the offensive tackle. And what that does is that basically puts them in the B-gaps. You're, cl- you're clogging up the B-gap. So in they and they they're going to take on a lot of double teams as well in those B gaps because they're kind of when you're lined up in a four eye it's really hard for the tackle to to get that reach block so it kind of necessitates some double teams there so when that happens it frees up the inside linebackers to run free uh, and, and, and so it does a great job that's a great defense in allowing you to play with your nickel package but still control the line of scrimmage but. It, one of the downsides of the mint front is that it just it just does not create a lot of natural one-on-one opportunities to where you're trying to get for the quarterback. That's just not the priority when you're in that 
that front. And then that's a front that we run a lot. Now we do get aggressive at times on third down and we'll occasionally bring five guys with like a fire zone or some, even sometimes like very rarely, but sometimes we we're going to bring six with what we call like eyes or hot. We're basically, we're bringing six guys and we have like two guys underneath and we get away with only having two guys underneath because the idea is, Hey, when we blitz like that, when we're bringing so many guys, when we're bringing the pressure like that, the quarterback has to get the ball to this hot read, right? So if you, if you guys played high school football or any level of football, you, I'm sure you know what a hot read is, right? You see the pressure in your, in your face as a quarterback, and you're just trying to get rid of the ball as quick as you can to that hot read, usually a tight end or a running back, whatever it is right there, really quick pass. And so our two guys underneath, when we bring six, they're coached to basically read the quarterback's eyes. That's why we call it the eyes defense or the hot defense because they're reading the hot routes and they're just watching where that hot route is going to be. So if you have a good beat on where the hot route is going to be for an offense, we, sometimes we'll bring six and we'll still be able to get away with that. But we really don't do that all that often. More often than not, when we're in third down situations, we use what we call simulated pressure. And I think this is something that Kirby Smart has really pioneered at the college level. I think he's done, I think he's been on the forefront of this. Now, other, other teams do it as well, but I think he was one of the leaders early on doing this. And you guys, you've seen it. You might not know what I'm talking about when I say simulated pressure, but you've all seen it, okay? Let me paint the picture here. Let's say we have, it's third down, third and long, third and 10, right? And we have our, our money package on the field. We have our dime package with our, with our six DBs on the field. We have two or three guys, just depends on what we're doing formationally, but two or three guys with their hands in the dirt, on the ground, on the line of scrimmage. And we have two guys that are kind of mugging in the A-gaps. Think about this, guys. It looks like two linebackers or might be, like Adam Anderson and Nicobe Dean last year, they're both lined up in the A-gaps, right? Look like they're about to blitz right through those A-gaps. And then you maybe have a star or the money DB lined up like they're bringing pressure from the edge. So it looks like we're giving the appearance that we are bringing six guys in, in, a, in, a, in a big pressure situation. But at the snap, we're not bringing six. Two of those guys drop back into coverage. We're only bringing four pass rushers. But the thing is, we get very creative with who those four pass rushers are. Uh, for example, one thing that we do a lot of, and again, we're not the only team that does this, but just to give you a quick little anecdote here. Like, let's say we show pressure from the field with the nickelback, okay? And then, so when the quarterback sees that, he's going to slide protection that way to the field where he sees the nickelback showing pressure. But the snap, the nickelback might drop out into coverage. And then we're bringing a cornerback blitz from the opposite side, from the boundary, with no one there to pick him up because the quarterback slid the pressure or slid his protection to the opposite side. So we do those kind of things. We're only bringing four guys the vast majority of the time. We'll bring five occasionally. We'll bring six occasionally. But more often than not, we're only bringing four guys, but we get very crafty and very creative in how we do that. And it's really all about just affecting the quarterback. And again, I think the results speak for themselves, even though we don't always get the guy down on the ground. I, I would love to see more of that. But if we can just affect the quarterback and the, and the overall numbers are as dominant as they were last year, I'm okay with the sack numbers being a little bit pedestrian. All right. Our next question is from at Georgia football underscore CFB. How much more concerned are you about the Auburn game with it being moved up to week two? It's nice to get Arkansas as a tune-up game, but the listener does think having this time, this game so early could make it more difficult than originally anticipated. Tyler, what's your take? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that's a very fair concern. That's certainly something that I would not dismiss right out of hand. I think we have to consider that since we're playing Auburn in week two, maybe that game could be a little bit more difficult than it would have been. I think originally we were scheduled to play them week five, October 10th, something like that originally, a couple weeks after we played Alabama. But I think there's a couple of different ways you could look at it. You could certainly look at it that way and say, wow, okay, we're playing them in week two now. That means we're not going to have much of a tune-up before we play them. Our offense really might not be clicking on all cylinders. We might not be into that rhythm offensively. Heck, with the new offense, we might not even have the full offense at our disposal. Maybe we haven't implemented everything yet. Now, I think we will have most of it implemented by the time we get to the season. Now, how comfortable we are with actually running it that's a different story. So we might not have the full playbook at our disposal. And really, when you go into a game, though, I know I'm kind of getting off track here, you don't really have the full playbook at your disposal. I guess technically you could call any play, but you usually go into a game with a with your game plan. You have a specific sheet of plays that you have spent all week developing, saying these are the plays that we're going to run against this specific team based on what they do on certain downs and distances and situations, all that kind of thing. So 
that's kind of beside the point. But anyway, yeah, it certainly could be viewed that way that our offense with a new coordinator, new quarterback, a lot of new players on the offensive line just might not be clicking yet. And in one of those situations where it's kind of like South Carolina for all those years, right? Where we used to play them in week two. And, you know, occasionally we would end up losing to them, even though we had the much more talented team. And we always looked back at the end of the year and said, man, God, if we would have played them in like week 11, we would have destroyed them. So it could certainly be a scenario like that. Because I do think that we have the more talented team that Auburn has this year. But I also think you can look at it in a different way. Kind of look at the flip side here and say, well, you know what? Like if we play them in week two, that means they're not going to have that much tape on what our offense is going to be like and what we're going to do. Sure, we have one game before we play them, but we kind of luck out and that we're playing Arkansas. And I don't want to completely just imagine that we can just roll our hats out there in week one and, and just beat Arkansas without even trying. But hopefully we will not have to use the entire playbook or dig too deep into the playbook to beat Arkansas. I certainly hope that's the case. And if that does end up being the case, then there's a good chance we would have an opportunity to kind of throw some new wrinkles at Auburn that, that they have not seen from our new offense under the direction of Todd Munkin. So I think you can look at, look at it that way as well. And maybe it's a little bit of both, so it's kind of like a just a wash there. But let me also throw this out there. We also have to factor into this equation the fact that Auburn is working in a new offensive coordinator as well. Now, is he going to have full reign with this offense? Is Chad Morris going to actually be able to take control of this offense and implement his offense that he's run for years, dating back to Clemson and SMU and then Arkansas all the past couple of years where it failed miserably, but he's still a really good offensive coordinator? Or is he going to have to kind of work within the confines that Gus Malzahn gives him? Because, you know, we know Gus thinks he's an offensive genius in his own right. So, while we might be able to throw some things at Auburn that they have not seen on tape from us before, you could also potentially say the same thing about them. So I think when you take all of that in totality, it, it does. I agree with you. It makes this game very intriguing, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. But we really appreciate the question. All right. This next question isn't really an on-field question, but I think it is something a lot of people have been wondering about. Micah says he knows we play Florida and Jacksonville every year, but technically this is a Georgia home game this year. Is the program making the right decision by keeping the game in Jacksonville this year? This means Georgia will have only four true home games while everyone else gets five. I think this has a lot to do with money, but that's certainly what do you think? Yes. I mean, when you're in a situation financially right now where there's going to be a budget shortfall, even if we do play the season, we get the, the, the TV money, which is great you're still losing a lot of the gate revenue, right? So teams, programs across the country are not in great financial shape. We're still pretty good. We're, we're, we're going to be fine. So we have a great reserve fund, a rainy day fund that we always used to make fun of, but hey, it's actually going to serve us well right now. But yeah, like when you're going to have some budget shortfalls, you want to get that money from Jacksonville. And like, I don't know what's in the contract. Do we have the ability to just say, okay, Jacksonville, it's like a force majeure clause where it's like, hey, if something crazy is going on, like a global pandemic, we have the right to pull out of Jacksonville for a year and play at home. Like, Can you do that? Because I mean, we're technically the home team, but we do have a contract with Jacksonville. I don't know exactly what's in that contract. I'd have to get a look at that. But I do think this is the right decision. Financially, Charlie, you're right. You bring that up. That, that's a great point. But also from a, just a practical standpoint, like a competitive standpoint, if we make Florida play in Athens this year, Charlie, what are they going to make us do next year? Play in Gainesville. Yeah, Florida is going to do that. They're, and Greg McGarry has basically said as much. Like, If you read some of his interviews, he was asked about that. Like, That's absolutely what is going to happen. If we make them play here, and they only have to play in front of, what, 20% of our fans? Okay, so maybe we have like 25,000. Yeah, so next year they would need to limit their fans. But that's not going to happen, right? No. Like, we would have to play at Florida, more than likely, with a full crowd in, in Gainesville. And that would be a, a crazy environment because that we never played them in Gainesville. So that's just not a scenario that we want. That's just competitively, that's, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. So I, I think because of that, and as you said, because of the financial implications here, I think playing in Jacksonville is the right decision. It sucks. It's not ideal um, because we want to have five home games like everybody else, but I think it's the right decision given the circumstances of this really weird, crazy season. And Charlie, I, I have to say, like, I know you, like, you've got to be super excited at the prospect of going down to Jacksonville for another year. No, thank you. I know that you love that trip every no, year. No, thank you. I and would love to go to Gainesville. I've actually never been to Gainesville because we've never played. I've never, I mean, might have been through. I've never actually like, stopped in Gainesville. So I have no idea what Gainesville is like. But it, you're right, it might be a different experience, like an actual like a college town. So 
Yeah, tell the, the audience here real quick. It's like you hate Jacksonville. Like, you go there every year with your family, but you hate it. Yeah, I don't really care for it. It's Why? Just, there's not a lot of sports bars or restaurants. I don't like to drive or even have to get an Uber away from the hotel. It's just not laid out well. Like, you like to be able to walk everywhere, and so do I, right? I yes. think we're, we're on the same page there. That's kind of what we do. Like, when I go on trips and you go, and like our families, we, we, we meet up at a lot of these places, so we're all kind of on the same page. But, look, and like, I know a lot of people, love, like, they plan their falls around Jacksonville, right? Like, they'll stay at St. Simons or Tybee or wherever you stay on the Georgia coast, and you'll drive in to tailgate for the game. But, and so I, if you love that, that is awesome. God bless you, and I hope you get to go for every year for the rest of your life. But yeah, I personally, I'm with you, Charlie. You know, we talk about this a lot. I don't like Jacksonville either. Like the landing when it was, it, like the landing was really nasty and just not a great place, but at least there were a couple of sports bars where you could go get some food, some drinks, and watch some games. But with, now the landing's gone, there's nothing. Like that area of Jacksonville is, it's not great. I don't want to offend anyone who lives there, but it's it's not exciting for me whatsoever. And I, look, and the day of the game, I'm all about like I I don't tailgate traditionally like, traditionally like a lot of people do. I go to bars so I can watch other games. That's my priority. I want to have a great time, eat, drink, be merry, but also watch other college football games. And I like to do that in the comfort of an air conditioned bar where people are serving me. And you can call me a, a princess if you want. That's fine. That's just kind of what I do. So Jacksonville doesn't really offer that at, at all. So it's just not all that appealing for me either, Charlie. So you're not alone in that. I just know that you're very vocal every year. Like, oh my God. Like you love going on, these, on a lot of these road trips, but you don't so much love Jacksonville. And yeah. I, don't, I don't blame you for that. But I know a lot of people do. And that's great. And, and I get it's a tradition. And tradition and college football is all about tradition. So I'm not necessarily saying that we shouldn't play in Jacksonville. It's just not my favorite trip. I'll just say that. All right. What's up next? Hunter has the first recruiting question on today's show. Uh, this question has three parts. So he wants to know what is the biggest position of need in the 2021 class. Oh my gosh, 2021. Oh. Yeah. Feeling there old. We are. Do you feel you like are old. thanks. Do you feel like we have met the need already? If not, who are some recruits that we could land to help fill that need? Yeah, uh, I think the two biggest needs are defensively right now. We have a ton of players back on defense this year, but we're going to be losing a lot of those guys next year. Yes, we have some guys weighing the wings. Of course, we do have that. But there are some areas where we need to reload. Uh, I think defensive backfield in general, cornerback and safety and inside linebacker. We did, not, we did not sign one inside linebacker last year. So those are two spots that I really am watching closely. We landed Dejon Warren. We talked about him earlier in the week, landed him on Monday. And that was a huge pickup, but we're not done yet at that position. We already have David Daniel as well, but I would love to see us get a guy like Nylon Green. I'd also love to see us get like Kamari Laster, Terry and Arnold out of Florida. Those are some names. If we land two of those guys, that's a home run DB class for sure. Inside linebacker, man, I, I'm Smale Munden, Xavier Sori. If we can land one of those guys, I will be very, very excited with this class, and heck, if we land both of them, man, that's absolutely lights out. But we need to get at least one of those guys after not signing anyone at inside linebacker last year. All right, Tyler, I know that you are high on Georgia's chances to make a run this year, so you probably have a lot to say about my next question. Well, it's not my question, it's Phillip's question. Or maybe you just want to ignore it completely and do everything you can to not think about it. Philip wants to know, how do you think the COVID-19 restrictions on college football this year will affect the college football playoff? I don't know if it will really affect it at all. I, I think if we have a season, and Charlie, we talked about this earlier in the episode, but if we have a season and we're able to get through the entire season, fingers crossed, God willing, then I think we're going to have a college football playoff just like we've had a college football playoff the past couple seasons. Sure, no Big Ten, no Pac-12, but... I mean, earlier this week, I think it was on Monday, the Coastal Playoff Committee came out and said, not only do we have updated dates, we're going to be releasing rankings. I think November 21st is the first date they're going to be releasing the Coastal Playoff rankings this year. So that's an updated date. It's a little bit later in the year, obviously, since the season's starting later. But they also said they're going to be meeting in person, not on Zoom calls. I assume they were going to be on Zoom calls talking about all these teams when they were doing the rankings. But they said they're going to be meeting in person to come up with these rankings. So... 
as of right now, again, things can change. I'm not predict. I'm out of the prediction business when it comes to the coronavirus and this COVID-19 pandemic. I'm out of it. But as of right now, based on the information we have, it does not seem like there are going to be any change in the college football playoff. They actually even said that we they're still planning on right now playing the semifinal games on January 1st at the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl, which is awesome, and still planning to have the national championship game a week and a half later at Miami in Miami this year. So I think again, if we have if we get through the season, I don't see any changes with the college football playoff. Maybe the bowl, the rest of the bowls, but college football playoff. I think it'll be about what it's been. All right. We are down to our final two questions for our show today. And our next question is another recruiting one. This one, Patrick asks, how would you rank our assistant coaches as recruiters? This is a really tough question. I saw this question and I I had to think about this because the thing is, Kirby Smart puts such an emphasis, such a priority on recruiting that he is in no way going to allow a coach to stay on his staff that's not pulling his weight when it comes to recruiting. It's just not going to happen. He knows how important it is. I mean, you've got to have the players. You've got to have the dudes, man. And he knows that. So they're all really good recruiters. So I had a tough time trying to piece this together because they've all landed big-time guys. So this is certainly open to interpretation. And you guys can certainly disagree with me on this. I'm sure you will. And I... Again, I, like, there's a couple different guys you could put at number one. I would not have an argument with you at all. But for me, at the top, I'm actually going to go with Dan Lanning. I know that he might not have that reputation nationally right now, but think about some of the guys that he landed. Guys, I can tell you right now that the reason Nolan Smith is still on this football team, that, that we actually end up landing him, is because of Dan Lanning. He came in. Nolan was going to go. Uh, when, we, when we had a coaching change, he was, he was going to decommit. or He was very close to decommitting. But Landon came in and closed the deal and landed the number one recruit in the country. Yes, he was already committed to us, but he kept this guy in the fold, and Dan Landing did that. He had to get Nolan to buy in really quickly, and he did it. And that, is, that was a huge, huge sell to make to Nolan Smith there. Uh, Jermaine Johnson, another guy. He got, he got him from the JUCO ranks, and I think Jermaine's going to be a monster this year. MJ Sherman, I think he's going to be another really good outside linebacker for us, maybe the next in line in a couple of years. And he was a guy that was a five-star prospect most of, uh, of, the, of the last recruiting cycle, but he slipped down to a high four-star at the very end. I think he's a five-star caliber player, and Lanning was able to get him from like the D.C. area. So I think Dan Lanning, with his youth, his exuberance, his energy, and now we're just starting to see what this guy can do from an X's and O standpoint as a defensive coordinator. I think this guy is a rising star in the profession in general. I just hope to God we can hold on to him for as long as we possibly can because I think he's a stud. I think this guy is a future superstar in the coaching business. So I'm putting him at number one. Coming at number two, again, a couple guys could go here, but I'm going to go with Del McGee. And I, and I really thought long and hard about having Del McGee up there at number one. Think about the list of guys that we have landed at running back under Dale McGee. James Cook, Zamir White, Kendall Milton. We had Zach Evans. We really had Trey Sanders until the end there, and then he kind of pulled a fast one on us at the very last second. And he's landed some big-time dudes. Now, we got to land somebody in this class right now. Like we got Lavoisier Carroll, but we still need to land another big-time guy. I would love to see Donovan Edwards in the mix as well. But, I mean, Dill McGee, year in, year out, has us in the thick of things for the best running backs in the entire country. And he's landed more than his fair share of them. So I got him at number two. Number three, I'm going to go with a guy who's a newer coach on staff, and that's our tight end coach, Todd Hartley. And this guy was a former recruiting guy under Mark Rick before Mark Rick gets fired and goes to Miami. Hartley follows him, takes an on-field job there in Miami. Now he's here. This guy's an ace recruiter, man. Think about it. In two years, he's landed his top two targets at the tight end position. His top two targets in his first two years got Washington last year and Brock Bowers this year. I mean, it does it get any better than that at the tight end position? I mean, Darnell Washington, Brock Bowers, and back-to-back years, your first two years on the job, like, dude, getting it done. I mean, absolutely getting it done. So I got him coming in at number three. And then I've got Glenn Schumann coming in at number four. I know some people are down on Schumann right now from a recruiting standpoint because we didn't sign any inside linebackers last year. Well, that's because we really didn't need to. We had a huge class in 2019. Landed a bunch of big-time guys in that class, including five-star Nicobe Dean, by the way. Got him out in the state of Mississippi. So that was a huge win there. But in that, it wasn't just Dean in that class. Ryan Davis, Tresman Marshall, big-time four-star prospects as well. Uh, Quay Walker, a uh, year before that. And then, yes, I know we didn't. We did not ultimately end up landing 
anybody last year inside linebacker, but it wasn't really a priority. But when you don't have to have anyone at position in a class, what that does is it frees you up to take a swing for the biggest guys in the class. Just take a swing for the guys you think are the best out there. And so we did. We, we took a swing at Noah Sewell from out in Utah, whose brother plays at Oregon. And we came very close to landing him. We were second. We were the runner-up in that recruitment, guys. We were. We were the runner-up in that recruitment. He ends up going to Oregon to play with his brother. But the fact that we were almost able to pull a, a, a guy from a Samoan background where family is very, very, very important to them, almost be able to pull him away cross-country from his family in Utah when his other option was to play with his brother at Oregon. And the fact that we got so close to landing him, I think that speaks volumes about the kind of recruiter that Glenn Schumann is. And sure, I know there's no prizes for, for being the runner-up, but I have no issues with Glenn Schumann as a recruiter. I think this guy is actually an elite recruiter. Then coming in in the number five spot, I've got the newest coach on staff. And that's Matt Lucas, offensive line coach. I know he hasn't landed a ton of guys here for us, but he's been a really good recruiter for years. Going back to when he was at Ole Miss, landed a big five-star offensive lineman in Greg Little. Was able to kind of seal up Tate Ratledge and Broderick Jones last year. Yes, they were already committed to us, but Sam Pittman was a big reason why they were committed. And the fact that Matt Luke was able to come in and just lock those guys down and keep them in the class... I think that speaks volumes about what he's been able to do. He's already put together a nice offensive line class right now, and we could potentially get a Marius Mims as well. We're certainly in the top two there. So if we end up landing Mims, I mean, Luke might move up this list. It's certainly possible. Then uh, just outside the top five, I've got Cortez Hankton coming at number six, our wide receiver coach. He's landed some big-time names too, guys. Like He probably should be higher up in this list. I just don't know who you'd put him over. George Pickens, Jermaine Burton, Marcus Roseme, just to say a, a couple of guys. I mean, big-time names and some big-time victories that he was able to pull. I mean, be able to flip Pickens at the, at the end of the cycle there. And look, as I will say this too, it's not like the position coaches are the only coaches that recruit guys. Like It's not like George Pickens only talked to Cortez Hankton. Sure, he was intimately involved in his, recruit, in his recruitment, but there's also area recruiters. That coach gets involved. Coordinators get involved. It's, it's not a one-man job. There might be a lead recruiter, but it's not always a one-man job. Uh, then after Hankton, I'm going to go with uh, Charlton Warren, DB coach. Being able to land Keely Ringo was massive. Uh, Jalen Kimber in that class as well. Being able to get Dijon Warren. Now, if he's able to land Nylon Green or Kamari Laster or Arnold in this class, he might move up a little bit as well. But right now, I've got him coming in at number seven. Uh, Todd Munkin, uh, look, hasn't really been here enough to do a ton of recruiting, but I know he was a big reason why we were able to flip Brock Vandergriff. Not the only reason, but he certainly made Vandergriff feel comfortable enough to commit to us to flip from Oklahoma, so throw him in there. And then Trey Scott, yes, he signed Jalen Carter in, in this past class, but and he signed some good prospects. I think he's gotten... And I hate to have Trey Scott down here because I think he has gotten beat up you know, from some, some people in the fan base and he's not pulling his way as a recruiter. But I think he's done a really good job considering that he had to kind of prove himself as, as a defensive line coach and kind of build that resume up. And, and getting Jalen Carter was, it was a great start there. And I think he does a really good job on the trail. I just don't know if he's as strong as some of the other guys, at least based on the guys he's going to be able to land to this point. But I think we're in good hands all the way around, no doubt. All right. We have a fun question to wrap up the show today. Parker says, a lot of fan favorite players have graduated over the past few years. So who is your favorite player on the team right now? Yeah, we've had a lot of guys graduate that, that I was really high and I was always rooting for. Look, I root for all of our guys, but certainly there's some guys that, you know, that uh, kind of captivate your interest more than others. Nick Chubb is like, for example, he'll always... I, I, I think he'll always be my favorite Georgia Bulldog. I don't see anyone be able to come in and unseat Nick Chubb. Maybe some something will happen in 20 years. But right now, Nick Chubb is my dude. But this year, huh? I'm going to go Zamir White. I'm going to go Zeus. And like, I'm a sucker for guys who are talented. Sure, you got to have talent to be at this level. But guys who just work hard, who take care of the business, quiet, no nonsense, kind of take care of business guys, great leaders, just great human beings behind the scenes. And that's one of the reasons I love Nick Chubb as much as I did. Just an incredible, incredible human being. And I think Zeus is cut from the exact same cloth as Nick Chubb. I'm not saying he's the same caliber running back. Maybe he is. We'll find out. Um, but just the kind of person he is. And the things that Zamir White has had to overcome in his life, guys, I tweeted this out. The UGA put out a video, or I thought department put out a video, and it was basically featuring Zamir White. And I, my, my tweet was, just very simply, this guy's overcome more than I could ever dream of overcoming in my life. I mean, this, if you guys aren't aware, he had a cleft palate as a child and had to have a couple surgeries to, to kind of take care of that and, and just 
having, I can imagine growing up with, with a cleft palate and then having the surgeries and dealing with it. I mean, it just, that's insane. Um, came from a, a, an impoverished background, a really, a, you know, an area where uh, life is tough. You know, life is tough in, in the area where he grew up in North Carolina. And he said as much in that, in that interview. And then had the two ACL injuries like that, all that adversity that he's faced throughout his life. And to be the human being that he is, that, and I don't know the guy, I've never met him, but everything I've heard about him, just a humble, quiet, kind individual behind the scenes. And to have to overcome all that adversity, he has every reason in the world to hate everyone, to hate the world, all the stuff that he's had to go through in his life. But he doesn't. And I, I, that's just, to me, that's just so impressive. And uh, that kind of spirit, man, like that, that deserves to be admired. And I certainly have a lot of admiration for, for Zamir White. And look, a lot of other guys on our team as well, but Zamir is probably the guy that stands out to me right now if I had to pick one player this season. All right. All right, that's it, guys. We really appreciate you sticking with us today. That wraps up the August mailbag. We were able to get through all the questions that we had left over from part one today. And from this point on, this is the last preseason mailbag episode. And from this point on, it is full steam ahead towards the 2020 fall college football season. Let's just hope things keep trending in the right direction. But thanks for listening, guys. For Charlie, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>